And so you have a pretty combustible situation going into 2024 where there's really no there's really no scenario under which things magically get a lot better under Maduro. Which is not to say that he can't continue to hang on to power because he's proven to be very adept at hanging on to power through the criminal structures that he's created, through the limited number of international allies he can count on. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Nicole Rivas, and I am joined by my co-host, Alexis Holowinski. Due to the electoral irregularities seen during the 2018 Venezuelan presidential election, Nicolás Maduro has faced a crisis of legitimacy, especially as the United States, the European Union, and the Organization of American States refuse to recognize him as Venezuela's rightful president. Who is Nicolás Maduro? What does he stand for? And what does the future of Venezuela look like? To answer these questions and more, we are joined by Dr. Ryan Berg. Ryan C. Berg is a senior fellow in the Americas program and the head of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is also an adjunct professor at the Catholic University of America and visiting research fellow at the University of Oxford's Changing Character of War program. His research focuses on U.S. Latin America relations, authoritarian regimes, armed conflict, strategic competition, and trade and development issues. Dr. Berg, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. So first, could you give us and our listeners a brief background on who President Nicolás Maduro is? Who is he? How did he rise to power? Maduro is the disputed president of of Venezuela. Um, Previously, he was the the president of the National Assembly in Venezuela. Then he had a stint as the foreign minister. And before Chavez's death in 2013, he was the vice president of Venezuela. And so he he was the handpicked successor among a few potential successors of Hugo Chavez. But he was the one who had the, the, the president's imprimatur and support for the continuation of the idea of, of Chavismo as a political movement. He is not necessarily a politician who is as naturally gifted as someone like um, Hugo Chavez. He doesn't uh, captivate a crowd in the same way that someone like Hugo Chavez did. He doesn't uh, have charisma sort of emanating uh, from him in the same way that Chavez did. But what he has proven able to do uh, is run, uh, is is maintain control of the country despite a significant amount of pressure, both domestically and internationally. So while he hasn't necessarily proven as adept as a politician of a significant political movement like Chavismo, he has happened to uh, maintain power and develop strategies that allow him to hold on to power despite all of the domestic and international pressure. Right. And so you you mentioned Chavez. Um, could you talk a little bit more about who Hugo Chavez is? It's kind of, it would be remiss to talk about Maduro without really giving us a, a brief overview of who Chavez is and his significance to Venezuela and the rest of the continent, really. Yeah. Chavez is one of these larger than life figures uh, who comes on the scene in, in Venezuela in the early 1990s. Um, he first came on the scene as the, the leader of a, a failed coup um, in, in the early 1990s. He was a figure in, in the army. I think the, 
the top rank that he achieved was uh, something like lieutenant colonel. And uh, after spending several years in prison for the failed coup attempt, um, he's, he's offered early release and he runs for president in 1998 and he's elected uh, by the Venezuelan people on a platform that is based largely on uh, redistribution, uh, attending to the needs of some of the poorest uh, in society. It represented in the history of the region, but, but especially in Latin America, I think a, 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 a dramatic shift uh, leftward in, in the domestic politics of Venezuela. And for a while, Chavez had at his disposal um, a country with a tremendous capacity for oil output, right? Venezuela has the largest crude reserves in the world, and for a long time it had a significant output capacity. And by in 1998, when Chavez was elected, it was producing anywhere between 3 and 3.5 million barrels of oil per day. And so there was a significant amount of money as well for Chavez to use in some of his redistributionary programs to try to remake uh, the country under his under his ideology, Chavismo. Uh, that didn't necessarily last throughout time, but at least that's the the that was the situation at the very start uh, of the Chavez years. And through time, of course, through corruption and through incompetence and and through lack of maintenance and and uh, the des- the decisions that were made at the state-run oil company PDVSA to not reinvest some of those profits back into uh, into maintenance and to, uh, to to upkeeping the type of technical expertise and knowledge that you need to 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 remain an oil-producing country, Venezuela has uh, declined precipitously in terms of its output, and. Uh, that has had a pretty significant effect on the state coffers, on the ability of Chavismo to maintain some of its original tenants as it did under Hugo Chavez uh, as a redistributionary party of, of the political left in Latin America. It just has far fewer resources now at its disposal to be able to uh, uh, develop programs that actually attend to the needs of the Venezuelan people. And so what's what's ended up happening over time is that Chavismo has become... Uh, nothing more than another authoritarian party, um, which rules by force as opposed to uh, ruling by any sort of uh, mandate uh, from the governed. And if you look at polls in Venezuela these days, and it's been this way for a couple of years, significant majorities of Venezuelans actually reject the government's policies, anywhere between 70 and, and 80 or 85 percent uh, of people. So th- this party has managed to keep power after Chavez uh, for a significant period of time, but it's a significant minority, more and more so each election cycle. And that's why you see the party resorting to the use of force and the security apparatus domestically in the country to hold on to power. So you've mentioned that the party's support has waned domestically. And since his most recent election in 2018, Maduro's legitimacy has also been questioned abroad, as the U.S. and other countries have not recognized him as Venezuela's president. Instead, the U.S. has recognized opposition party leader Juan Guaido as a legitimate Venezuelan president. So could you tell us a little bit about Guaido and his coalition? What are his political goals? Guaido is a young um, opposition politician in Venezuela. He became uh, the leader of the, the National Assembly in 2019. Leader of the National Assembly, by the way, is a position that rotates 
um, every couple of years. And so it's not uncommon to have many leaders of, of, of the National Assembly in Venezuela. Um, Guaido becomes leader of the National Assembly in Venezuela in 2019. I think he, at the time, he's about 35 or 36 years old. Uh, he's not a Caraqueño, which is to say he's not from Caracas. He's from, uh, from, from the eastern part of the country, so he has regional diversity. He's young, he's dynamic, and at the time he had a, a pretty large following, people who were willing to get out into the streets and protest um, and, and come to his rallies. And so it, it, it appeared at the time, at least, as though he had a pretty significant organizing capacity. Uh, his coalition is a number of opposition parties uh, that won the National Assembly in Venezuela in 2015. Um, these opposition parties, the, the four largest of which are, are generally referred to as the G4, the main four opposition parties in Venezuela, um, and that they're some of the largest supporters of, of Guaido in, in the National Assembly. Um, in, as I mentioned, in 2015, they won the National Assembly to the Maduro regime's chagrin and, and great surprise, I think. Um, and, and many analysts consider those to be the last free and fair elections in Venezuela. Um, and, and from there, the U.S. considers the current National Assembly led by Wang Guaido to be the legitimate National Assembly. Again, because it's considered to be the last free and fair election in Venezuela. How do we get to the point where Guaido uh, assumes the interim presidency in Venezuela? Well, that actually comes from the Venezuelan constitution. There are particular articles in the Venezuelan constitution that address the need to, to have a person who is at least ex officio president of, of Venezuela. In 2018, there was another fraudulent election in Venezuela where Maduro stands accused of rigging the vote and inaugurating himself after a highly fraudulent election. And so the idea was to use those clauses in the Venezuelan constitution to allow Guaido as leader of the National Assembly to assume what's called the interim president position. So if there is no if there is no person in Venezuela who can claim to legally hold the presidency from a free and fair election, then ex officio or by the nature of the office, the leader of the National Assembly becomes interim president until such time as free and fair elections in the country can be held. And so this was a really attractive idea, I think, to the international community and to the United States and its allies because it seemed as if it were a domestic solution to a Venezuelan problem. It was based in Venezuelan in the Venezuelan constitution and in Venezuelan law. Um, it wasn't an international imposition, as you hear some people say. It wasn't Wang Guaido declaring himself to be uh, interim president and all of a sudden the US and its allies deciding willy-nilly that that was going to be the case. This was actually rooted in uh, domestic institutions and the Venezuelan constitution, a constitution, by the way, that was written by Hugo Chavez. So we're not exactly talking about a constitution that somehow leans in the opposition's direction. And from that position, Guaido was able to develop a very significant international presence, including an international support structure with ambassadors that were nominated by his coalition 
um, with uh, support from over 60 countries at, at the peak of his international support, recognizing the fact that his claim to being interim president of the country on a sort of time-limited basis until free and fair elections could be held was a legitimate claim, right? It was based in, in law and it was based in the Venezuelan constitution. Um, and so his goal with using that platform was to push the Maduro regime to make concessions so that they could redo elections in a freer, fairer, and more transparent manner. Or in the instance that the Maduro regime couldn't withstand that type of international pressure where there were rival claims to the presidency and a sort of shadow government that was erected in a significant part of the world with ambassadors and representatives and the years of, of politicians in those countries, that Maduro would just leave um, under, under the pressure of Guaido's international apparatus. That hasn't transpired, as we know, uh, but that was the thought process in, in the moment, was to use this solution that was rooted in domestic, um, in, in the domestic legal structure and also in the Venezuelan constitution to solve what was, uh, what was really a, a sort of regional problem that was emanating from Venezuela, which was the economic breakdown, the, the, the political breakdown, the migration crisis, the humanitarian crisis. It seemed at the time to be a very attractive solution uh, led by a very charismatic young man named Juan Guaido. And as Guaido has worked to push the regime to make concessions, like you said, and open the country to free elections um, constitutionally and with the support of the G4, who have been his main allies internationally? Well, we, we have to start with the U.S. Uh, the U.S. was very quick to recognize Guaido's status as interim president of the country. That was followed by a number of, of Latin American countries. Um, Colombia followed, Paraguay followed, Peru uh, for a while, uh, Brazil, uh, Chile, Argentina under the previous president, Mauricio Macri. So that's the, the regional context. Canada was also, of, of course, involved. And then beyond that, Guaido uh, had recognition from the United Kingdom, from a number of countries in the European Union, and throughout the, the broader region. And so at, at its peak, it was about 60 countries. Um, that has since withered to an extent as Guaido has continued in the interim president position as elections have come and gone, further elections have come and gone in Venezuela. And in some of those elections, the opposition has decided not to participate, such as the National Assembly elections in 2020. These things are run every five years. And so, as I mentioned, the opposition won the last ones in 2015. But in 2020, there were naturally occurring uh, National Assembly elections again, and the opposition decided to boycott those elections because there were just there were no conditions for free, fair, and transparent elections in the country. So they decided not to play the game. And some of the international partners of the Guaido interim government decided that that position significantly undermined the coalition. So the European Union decided to pull away from its recognition of Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela after the December 5th, 2020 National Assembly elections in Venezuela, and now refers to Guaido not as interim president, but as a privileged interlocutor of the opposition. It's unclear to many of us what that actually means, privileged interlocutor. 
But I think it's just another phrase uh, for Guaido that is an, an attempt to signal out his position as a particularly important politician in the opposition, but not necessarily someone whom they consider to occupy the interim president position. The UK, the United States, and Canada, on the other hand, have maintained the recognition of Guaido as the interim president of, of Venezuela. And that continues to be uh, the, the sort of support structure for Guaido internationally as he seeks to build or rebuild, in this case, an international coalition uh, of countries that recognize his interim government. The region itself, Latin America and the Caribbean, is a little bit more uh, mixed. You've got some countries still recognizing the Guaido government. You have quite a few others who have shifted away from the Guaido interim government because the region itself is shifting towards the political left. Peru elected a, a president uh, with, with affinities for, for the Maduro regime. Um, Brazil has an election coming up. Uh, in, in October of this year, which could see the return of Lula da Silva to the, to the presidency. So you might see a shift there. Colombia has a presidential election in May of this year. So you could see a shift there as the center left candidate, uh, uh, Gustavo Petro, is leading the polls there. Uh, Mexico under Lopez Obrador has not been a particularly strong uh, partner for the, for the Guaido government. So, so they have been soundly in the, the Maduro camp. Uh, Chile recently had an election which moved the country to the political left, and so many of us are expecting an announcement on Venezuela there. Argentina had an election which moved the country to the political left, and so they pulled out of their recognition of the Guaido interim presidency. And so the regional landscape is changing as well, and that has had a, a deleterious impact, in my opinion, on some of the momentum that the opposition has had. There, there are more reasons for the momentum loss of the opposition, but one of them is undoubtedly the regional shifts in politics and the fact that some of those, the main countries in the region have moved away from recognizing the Guaido government. Like you said, in the process of having to rebuild this international coalition. Um, and then I guess conversely, I want to ask, does he have a lot of domestic support from the Venezuelan people? This is one of the areas that falls under the category of uh, there were when I said that there were plenty of other reasons to explain why the Guaido government doesn't have the same level of momentum that it had in 2019. Um, there were plenty of mistakes that the opposition made on the domestic level. There were plenty of ways the opposition could have had more domestic street pressure and could have had better organizing and could have had fewer um, schisms within the, the, the governing coalition. And this has had an effect on the opposition's ability to organize, on the opposition's ability to maintain the support of the average Venezuelan. And principally, in my opinion, it comes down to the fact that the opposition was not able to achieve what it set out to achieve, which was either the conditions for an election redo or the departure of the Maduro regime. Meanwhile, while it was seen as sort of infighting, occasionally engaging in some of the same acts of corruption as the Maduro regime, it was not only unable to achieve some of those goals that it had set out for itself in 2019, but there was the COVID pandemic, which provided the Maduro regime under public health, uh, supposed public health guidance, 
inability to crack down on, on the opposition and its ability to organize in public, they also were unable to achieve uh, the types of day-to-day, the quotidian needs of the Venezuelan people. And so as the economy has continued to slide into the worst economic recession outside of wartime, uh, the average Venezuelan is focused on their day-to-day needs. Politics in many ways seems like a luxury in a way that even in 2019, there was still a crisis in 2019, but it's gotten worse every year. And so in 2019, politics wasn't as much of a luxury as it is now. Now, I think the focus is almost squarely on the day-to-day needs, water, food, electricity, uh, heating, um, gas for, uh, for cooking, for heating homes, uh, gasoline for cars, basic basic things that the opposition, unfortunately, hasn't been able to improve in the country because, quite frankly, it doesn't control much of the state apparatus. It does control a few of the governorships, the National Assembly. Um, Some of the key institutions in the country have a little bit of representation by the opposition, but by and large, almost every institution in the country is dominated by the Maduro regime, which makes it very difficult for the opposition to show voters that they're making a concrete, tangible difference in the lives of the Venezuelan people on a day-to-day basis. And I think that has far more of, a, of an explanatory factor in, in it, it is far more of an explanatory factor in why Guaido in particular has seen his polling numbers diminish in the country to the point where he used to be well above Maduro in terms of his approval rating and, and his popularity and is now hovering around the same spot as Maduro, around 15 or 20% of the population. What has grown is not necessarily support for Maduro. That's still around the 15 or 20% mark, as I said. What has grown is apathy. Apathy for politics, because many people do not see politics as the solution to their day-to-day problems. You've got the opposition saying certain things about the regime and what needs to be done. It doesn't seem to be making a difference in the day-to-day lives of the Venezuelan people. You have the regime saying another thing and yet still being unable to make a difference in the day-to-day lives of the people because they don't care. They don't spend the money on the people in the programs that they used to have. They spend the money on themselves because this is, at the end of the day, a regime that exists largely as a criminal regime, which steals money and engages in significant amounts of kleptocracy. And so what has risen, as Guaido's poll numbers have have declined, is apathy. People really don't see politics as the solution anymore to their problems. And that is a significant challenge for the opposition when it comes to future elections, when it comes to uh, future opportunities to mobilize people and get them to the the ballot box to vote for them. And amidst these changes to the international political landscape, and especially the domestic economic one, we understand there have been a series of negotiations between Maduro and Guaido since 2018. So could you explain for our listeners what the state of these negotiations is right now? Negotiations with the Maduro regime are the constant siren song in the opposition regime battles. So it seems to me as though every time the opposition manages to get enough international recognition, enough international support in terms of pressure and sanctions um, and financial restrictions and asset freezes and indictments, 
all the tools that we use to bring pressure as the U.S. and our international coalition against the Maduro regime, the regime is offering negotiations. Negotiations for concessions uh, in the political space, negotiations for greater uh, opportunities uh, in the economic space. That, to me, is really the siren song throughout all of, of these battles between the opposition and the regime. Um, and so we've seen does, literally dozens of attempts to negotiate with both the Chavez and now the, the Maduro regimes throughout the history of Chavismo in Venezuela. And it never really amounts to much. I've got to say that the concessions that are put on the table are never concretized or, or they, they never last long. The regime oftentimes comes to the table in bad faith. And they, they often tend to depart negotiations when they've gotten the relief that they want or when they've gotten a little bit of the concession from the opposition that they want. And negotiations have, have really not been concluded sec successfully in recent years at all. And so there was an attempt during the Trump administration to have negotiations um, in Barbados, brokered by uh, the, the Norwegians, as the, the neutral party. Those didn't really go anywhere because the regime uh, backed out once the US uh, decided to put another round of sanctions on cronies within the, the Maduro regime. There are current uh, negotiations. I say they're current. The status is that they're currently suspended, but there are, in theory, negotiations to which the opposition and the regime could return, hosted in Mexico City, again, brokered by the Norwegians, um, discussing all sorts of, of things in the political and economic spaces. Those negotiations had started just before recent elections in November of, of last year. I think the negotiations started around September of 2021. Again, they didn't achieve much either. If you look at the agreements that the regime and the opposition arrived at, they had to do with Venezuela's territorial integrity, the fact that because of certain historical rulings by the International Court of Justice and others, that half of uh, Guyana's territory should actually be Venezuelan. You know, some of the things that they concluded and that they agreed to really had nothing to do with the day-to-day -day livelihoods of the Venezuelan people, and most importantly, the ability of the opposition to compete in presidential elections under free, fair, and transparent conditions. And once again, the regime pulled away from those negotiations when the U.S. extradited one of its financial money men, one of its financial front men by the name of Alex Saab, who had been in a legal process for extradition from Cape Verde for over a year, where he was captured um, on a refueling stop on a trip to Iran. So these processes were entirely unrelated, right? The Justice Department process to extradite Alex Saab to the United States for money laundering charges and other financial crimes, and the Maduro regime's participation in the Mexico City dialogues. Nevertheless, the regime connected the two things and said that we had kidnapped, that we being the United States had kidnapped Alex Saab, that we had sabotaged negotiations, and that they were not going to come back to the table until we had released Saab back to, to Venezuela. Of course, these issues are entirely separate. The U.S. under President Biden supports 
the opposition being at the negotiation table in Mexico. It supports in, in State Department statements the use of U.S. sanctions as tools of pressure to get the regime to negotiate, and it expressed a willingness to lift those negotiations if the Venezuelan opposition is able to re- achieve something concrete in negotiations. But these two processes had nothing to do with one another, and nevertheless, the regime used it as an excuse to depart or in their words, suspend negotiations in Mexico City under the very spurious idea that Alex Saab was a diplomat for Venezuela and that he was credited as a diplomat as part of the Venezuelan delegation in Mexico City. Several courts have declared that this is absurd as an idea. It it passes no legal muster whatsoever, but nevertheless, the regime has used it as an excuse to step away from the table. Um, that's the current status of negotiations. There are many parties who would like to get back to the negotiating table. Uh, the question in my mind at this point is to talk about what? What is there on the table when the elections that were supposed to be negotiated for in November 2021 have already passed? The election monitors who are on the ground have noted uh, intense irregularities and fraud including the European Union and the Carter Center and other very credible elections observers. And so what is there to talk about at this point? That is the key question. So in addition to suspending negotiations, how has Maduro's government responded to Trump both tightening sanctions and recognizing Guaido as president? That's a great question. I think you could make a, a, a very strong argument for why the Maduro regime was a, a criminal regime before the Trump administration set their eyes on Venezuela and significantly ramped up U.S. and international pressure on Venezuela. I think what happened after the U.S. sanctions and pressure campaign is that the regime survived by rushing headlong into criminal economies. Um, Venezuela was already a significant narco state. It was already a state with significant state participation in narco trafficking, particularly the security forces. So the the Venezuelan army and the National Guard are involved in in moving illicit product from Colombia through Venezuela and, and out through Venezuelan ports, taking a significant cut of the, uh, of the illicit drug markets and, and industry. But I think there was a rush headlong into other criminal economies, not just the drug trafficking. Once the US started to use asset freezes and sanctions, both entity and individual sanctions, and international pressure through things like indictments and Interpol notices on the regime. And so now you have a regime that's engaged in all sorts of illicit activity to an even greater extent than they already were. And so I'm talking about the oil industry becoming highly illicit. Uh, there's obviously an illicit gold industry that has proven to be very lucrative for the regime, a criminal mining policy where the regime has used a, the significant mineral wealth of Venezuela to invite all sorts of unsavory groups like the uh, National Liberation Army, Colombian guerrillas, and the uh, the and other terrorist organizations like the dissident movement of the FARC into Venezuela to run gold mines for a share of of, of the profit, um, and there have been uh, untold 
amounts of environmental degradation as a part of this criminal mining policy, but it has proven to be a policy that is capable of shoring up the regime in the sense that it's brought gold and money into hard currency into their coffers. And it's been bolstered by an international system where gold is very difficult to trace. It gets into the supply chains of major companies because once it's smelted and and once it's melted down um, and once it's been put into a registry, it can be exported with very little tracing and tracking, very little recognition of its origins as Venezuelan gold as opposed to Colombian gold or Brazilian gold or Guyanese gold or any other country in the Peruvian gold, any other country in the region that exports gold. Uh, it's very difficult to trace these things because it's melted down and easily disguisable. There are ways to claim that it has been legitimately mined um, by topping up the amount of gold that's exported on official export papers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so this has proven to be a, a major uh, bulwark for the regime in terms of its ability to resist international pressure. I would be remiss to 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 for you know to 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 not mention the fact that the regime has also relied on a cast of typical uh, authoritarian powers, China and Russia principally, but also Cuba and to a lesser extent Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and a few other countries to help prop up the regime, to give it support during critical periods of time when it was feeling international pressure or domestic pressure and thought maybe that this was the end, and also to support the, uh, the, ne the necessary elements of the criminal economies that help keep this regime in power. So it, it's been a combination of, of factors, but it's the principally it's the regime's rush into criminal economies on the domestic level and the ability and willingness of other authoritarian powers on the international level to shore up the regime and to play in its criminal enterprises. Could you also explain how U.S. policy has changed, if at all, since Biden's election? And then on the flip side, in response to these shifts or even independent of them, is Maduro taking a different approach with Biden? These are great questions, and they're, they're quite befuddling to analysts of Venezuela because President Biden campaigned on a change in U.S. policy toward Venezuela. He campaigned by saying that the Trump administration's policy was nothing more than a policy aimed at getting votes in South Florida, where there has been a large and growing Venezuelan diaspora with, increasing, uh, with an increasing voice in Florida politics and a voice that you could say made a difference in Trump's winning Florida in the 2020 election. So Biden thought that the Trump policy was aimed at that diaspora, as well as, by extension, the Cuban diaspora in, in Florida, the Nicaraguan diaspora, other diasporas that are in the state of Florida for reasons of, of politics and in their home countries. And he, he argued that the Trump administration's policy didn't have tangible impacts on the domestic level such that they would solve the situation. So he campaigned on a change in Venezuelan policy, U.S. policy toward Venezuela. 
What we've seen so far, however, is actually largely a continuation of U.S. policy toward Venezuela. In theory, U.S. policy on Venezuela has been in review by the U.S. State Department since the inauguration. That review is being run by the Deputy Secretary of State, as far as I understand, Wendy Sherman. We haven't had any significant announcements on U.S. policy toward Venezuela, really at all, um, but especially with respect to changes in posture um, in the in the Biden administration. And so the only thing that we can conclude from my perspective as analysts of U.S. policy toward Venezuela and as analysts of Venezuelan politics is that the Biden administration policy is simply at this point in time to talk less about Venezuela. For Trump administration, Venezuela occupied a very large chunk of U.S. policy toward Latin America. And I think the Biden administration wants to take a wider lens or a, a broader aperture to U.S. policy toward the region. And what that means is trying to put Venezuela on the back burner. Of course, it's an issue that draws so much attention and, and, and uh, pushes regional dynamics in such important ways that it's difficult to put this issue on the back burner. But for now, that's really the only policy shift that I can see out of the Biden administration is that it's just to talk about Venezuela less, to, to have Venezuela occupy less effort from the United States in terms of its policy toward the Western Hemisphere, to think about and talk about Venezuela less, to be slightly less strident in terms of our rhetoric towards the Maduro regime, and to be slightly more uh, overt in our support for negotiations between the regime and the opposition in Mexico City. Other than that, there, has, there have been zero changes in terms of uh, shifts in sanctions, shifts in asset freezes, shifts in position on Guaido. We still support Guaido in the opposition. We still recognize him as interim president. So it has largely been a continuation of US policy in ways that have dumbfounded analysts like me who expected a, a, a larger shift from the Biden administration. Now, in terms of how the Maduro regime is dealing with Biden, I think the Maduro regime realizes that the Biden administration sees this as less important to its foreign policy than the Trump administration um, did. It, it sees that, that the Biden administration is less interested in the domestic politics of this issue than the, the Trump administration was. And so the Maduro administration has, on a number of occasions, invited Biden to reach out to President Maduro, to reach out to the Venezuelan regime and to negotiate tete-a-tete, head-to-head um, with, with, between Maduro and Biden. This is something Biden, of course, hasn't accepted, but it's something that they've put on the table. Um, they understand that the current president is more in favor of negotiations in Mexico City, and so, of course, they have um, they have uh, engaged in their usual dance around the siren song of negotiations with the opposition. Again, in my opinion, not in not in good faith, but they have played up the the negotiations and the prospect that the negotiations um, would continue in Mexico City. 
Um, so they're using, from from their perspective, I think they're using the Biden administration's position to their advantage to to try to get what they want. I think there's a there's a pretty keen understanding in Caracas on how the Biden administration differs ever so slightly from the Trump administration, if not in the sanctions architecture it's put on the regime, then certainly in its posture and its openness to see negotiations occur in Mexico City. Right. And as we wrap up, I kind of want to broaden or end on a more broad question. What really is the outlook for Maduro's presidency um, if we take into consideration everything you've just said about the international pressures from the U.S., the harsh U.S. sanctions, the pandemic that has only worsened the um, internal economic pressures. And also, um, you also mentioned like the corruption that Maduro's government has been accused of and abuse of power, human rights violations. Can Maduro really keep his grip on power or will he be forced to loosen it a little bit? And if he's not ousted, what's next for Venezuela? Well, these are great questions and they're, they're the questions um, in terms of U.S. policy and, and where we go with, with this. Um, it's cl- Maduro has proven extremely resilient in terms of his ability to withstand U.S. pressure, sanctions, um, international pressure, and even a, a shadow government that was constructed by Guaido with, with large levels of support from some of the most powerful countries in the international system. So this is not a challenge to be underestimated and certainly not a challenge to be put on the back burner. Um, If Maduro stays in power until 2024, which would be the next naturally occurring presidential election, right now we are looking at a situation where there have been more than 6 million Venezuelans in a country of about 30 or 31 million who have left the country. So you've got about one-fifth of the country living outside of the country. That number is going to continue to accelerate. You have 90% or so of the population living in poverty, as estimated by a recent by a recent study done by Encovi, which is the multidimensional poverty study done by one of the main universities in Caracas. You have regional insecurity being fomented by the regime itself, by its invitation to Colombian guerrilla groups to operate on its territory, by its invitation for all sorts of other unsavory groups to operate in the illegal mines on its territory, and the insecurity born of the migrant outflows um, from, from Venezuela. You have the environmental degradation in Venezuela from some of these policies, unfortunately not being contained within Venezuela, but spreading to Colombia and to Brazil and to other parts of the region. And so you have a pretty combustible situation going into 2024 where there's really no there's really no scenario under which things magically get a lot better under Maduro. Which is not to say that he can't continue to hang on to power because he's proven to be very adept at hanging on to power through the criminal structures that he's created through the limited number of international allies he can count on. Um, But unfortunately, that is a pretty dystopian future where uh, there could be future elections which are rigged, future elections which are not free, fair, and transparent, 
and a future in which it's possible to envisage Maduro winning another presidential term by fraud, of course, in 2024 and continuing for uh, another six years. So it is unclear to me where exactly this goes, uh, but the imperative is clear to me that the opposition has to reformulate and reorganize itself. It has to find new faces and new figures capable of getting people back out into the street and doing the basic organizing stuff that it hasn't done well, basically since slightly before the pandemic and certainly through the pandemic. And it needs to carefully use the structures of international pressure that have been created on the regime to get concessions that can help it compete. I won't say freely and fairly and transparently in 2024, because I think that is a stretch, but more freely, more fairly, and more transparently than it otherwise would if it didn't get any concessions. So unfortunately, the the future with Maduro is dystopian. But I do think that there are scenarios under which the opposition makes a major splash in 2024 and makes a run at the presidency um, because the Maduro regime is, at the end of the day, it's weak. Um, it's in danger of, a, uh, of, of being defeated um, in, in, an elect, in an election that is uh, democratic and slightly freer and fairer and more transparent than elections are normally held in Venezuela. Um, and it's just up to the opposition and U.S. policy to stay in tune to some of these weaknesses and take advantage of them um, so that we can see a better, brighter, democratic, more prosperous future for Venezuela. Well, thanks again, Dr. Berg, for coming to the podcast and for this great conversation. Thank you both very much. It's always a pleasure to be on the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.